0: This week is week six of our series in Romans that I've entitled, Unshackled, The Grace of God in Romans, and this book is divided in three parts. I've been telling you this, that there's three parts of this book, that chapter one through chapter three, verse 20, is Paul's diagnosis of sinners, chapter 321 through chapter 11 is Paul's revelation of the deliverer of sinners, Jesus. It's this glorious section on the gospel. And so last week we began this awesome part as Tyler brought an amazing message on faith and being justified through faith in Romans 4 and in the promises of God, that the promise still stands because we are justified by faith and faith alone. So we come to some of the most incredible parts of the Bible in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. So I hope that you will make it a priority to be here and to study and to journey with us. So Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through Him, we have also obtained access Paul says in verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just that one verse could be preached about for an entire lifetime. Since we've been justified by faith, let the weight of those words sink deep into our souls. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The warring with God between you and God and me and God is over. There is peace between us. The presence of peace is the absence of guilt. I've told you about my dog, Winnie, before, and she and I have peace between us, when she isn't guilty. I'm telling you that dogs have guilty consciences. I know they're not supposed to have guilty consciences because they are creatures, they're not human, they don't have such feelings, but you can just see it in their eyes when they've done something wrong, right? I mean, you can see it, that they have a guilty conscience. And so when she's sitting on the bed with us at night, looking cute, sitting still, She and I have great peace between us, but when she goes off by herself, and she does something in the house that she's not supposed to do, and then I see her, I can already tell, and her and I no longer have peace between us. She has a guilty conscience, and there's no longer peace. There's other times that she doesn't realize the magnitude of her bad deeds, like when she will chew on shoes or whatever. She will think that's a toy, and so she doesn't even realize that it's wrong for her to do that. Psychiatrists will tell you that the biggest problem with their patients is the guilt that they carry, the dis-ease that they have inside of themselves. If these psychiatrists could figure out a way to convince their patients that they are forgiven, that they are freed from guilt, they could dismiss most of their patients. Why? Because of our sense of guilt. One psychologist said that a guilty conscience is the seasoning of our daily lives. Guilt is built into our DNA. We guilt others to get what we want. Many of the problems of our lives have their root in guilt. I once heard it put this way that if you look at each one of our problems as rocks, if you have the guts to pick up that rock and look under that rock, what you will find are a bunch of guilt worms. You'll find lots of guilt behind most of our problems. Many of you have dragged in a sense of guilt right into this place this morning. You have a sense of guilt. You have dis-ease. There there is no peace. There is no peace with others. There is no peace maybe in your marriage, maybe in your parenting, maybe at your job, in relationships. You understand exactly what I'm saying when I talk about peace and guilt. Verse 1 literally reads, since we have been justified by faith, let us... Have peace with God. It's the best translation. Let us grab onto this peace. Let us step into this peace. Let us stand in this peace. Let there be no more guilt. Let us know that Jesus has won the victory for us. Romans 5:2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul tells us how we can stand in this peace. Why you can have this peace. The reason we can have this peace with God is because of grace. Paul says we have this grace in which we stand guilt is the sense that our past is present that there's always a piece of our past with us that we can never fully leave our past guilt is standing in the past so you can either stand in guilt and have no peace with God or you can stand in grace and have incredible blessed peace with God which one are you this morning Are you standing in guilt or are you standing in grace? Are you standing in guilt or are you standing in grace? To stand in grace, first we must know the full extent of our sin. The full weight of our sin. We have to know the whole story about ourselves. We have to know the full depth of our guilt. The extent of our brokenness. In order to have peace, it's it's counterintuitive. The world tells us in order to have peace, you must minimize your guilt. You must look past that. Scripture tells us in order to have peace, we must first walk through our guilt and first have a very clear picture of our sin. I recently read an interview with a pastor who fell from grace and the fall was, was very public There was lots of stuff written about him on the internet, and what he wrote many months later was, a lot of what you've read about me is true, some of it is false, but if you knew the whole story about me, if you knew my thoughts, my words, my deeds, my motives, my actions, if you knew the whole thing, none of you would have anything to do with me. And in fact... It's hard to believe that even Jesus would love me. It makes you squirm when you hear that, if you hear that about a pastor. If you think to yourself, I'm not that bad, I'm not that guilty, and no one else should be either, especially a pastor, then you don't get it. If you're not the worst sinner that you know, then you don't know yourself very well. If you're not the worst sinner, if you're not the most guilty person that you've ever met, then you don't know yourself very well. We stand in guilt and not grace when we don't believe that we are the worst sinner that we know. We think highly of our own sin and we focus on other sins. A fool does a beeline for passages that refer to his his own holiness or sins that he doesn't personally struggle against. We stand in guilt rather than grace because we don't see the sheer disaster of our own sin. We stand in guilt because we deceive ourselves into justifying our sin. So we say, I'm not controlling I'm just a good leader. We say, I'm not lusting, I'm just stressed. We say, I'm not looking at the pictures in the magazine, I'm just reading it for the articles. We say, I'm not people pleasing, I just want to be a good example to others. We think sin isn't paying our taxes, it's breaking the rules. Sin isn't so much breaking the rules, it is that, but it is much deeper than that and much more personal than that. Sin is breaking your father's heart. Sin is giving your affection to another when your father in heaven has given you all that you need. God says, I want your heart. I want to have peace with you. I don't want you to do it because you have to, but because you love me. Do you have a high view of your sin? Or are you squirming in your seat? John Owen, one of the great church pastors in history, he said, he that has slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. To get to the grace, to stand in grace, to stand in peace, we must have an accurate view of our sin. Keith Green was a famous songwriter back in the late 70s, big afro, um, just a, a really great musician. And he not only wrote and sang songs, but he had this strong sense of conviction. I mean, he would preach when he would sing. His songs were convicting. He wrote one song that was called The Sheep and the Goats. And this song was like 10 minutes long, and During this entire song, he unpacks Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus tells this parable of the sheep and the goats. And so in the song, you can hear it in his voice. You can hear the conviction in his voice, almost the irritation in his voice that why can't Christians just get it? That Jesus said that if you've not given to the least of these, if you've not clothed the naked, if you've not visited the prisoner, if you've not taken in the orphan, if you've not done it to these people, you've not done it to me. And you can hear that conviction in his, in his voice, in, his, in the lyrics. And so after Keith Green sings about the, the sheep who do all of the good things and the right things, he then turns to the goats, These are some of the lyrics. He says this, Then he shall turn to those on his left, the goats, and he'll say to them, You didn't do this, you didn't do that, you didn't clothe me when I was naked, you didn't visit me when I was in prison. And then the goats will answer, Lord, there must be some mistake. When? Lord, I mean, when were you hungry, Lord, and we didn't give you something to eat? Lord, when were you thirsty and we didn't give you a drink? I mean, that's not fair. Would you like something now? Would one of the angels like to go out and get the Lord a hamburger and a Coke? Oh, Lord, you're not hungry. Yeah, I kind of lost my appetite, too. Lord, Lord, when were you naked? I mean, Lord, that's not fair either, Lord. We didn't even know what size you wear. You could hear the biting sarcasm. Lord, when were you a stranger? You weren't one of those creepy people who used to come to the door, were you? Lord, that wasn't our ministry. We didn't just, we didn't feel led to do that. Lord, when were you sick? What did you have anyway? At least it wasn't fatal. Oh, it was. I'm sorry, Lord. I would have sent you a card if I had known. Lord, just the last thing we want to know when were you in prison? What were you in for anyway? And then Jesus yells, enough, depart from me. And then Keith Green ends the song by making this statement, and my friends, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scripture, is what they did and didn't do. The end. End of the song. I understand the song, but the reality is that unless we are visiting the prisoner all the time, unless we are feeding the hungry all the time with pure motives, 100% of the time, unless we're clothing the naked all the time, unless we're bringing in one orphan after another, after another, 100% of the time, we don't pass the muster of that passage. We don't pass it. The problem I have with the song is there's no but at the end of the song. There's only bad news. We stand in guilt and not grace when we water down the law of God. You see, that's what we do when we think that we can do that song, that passage. When we think that we are measuring up in some way because of some efforts that we have. We're actually watering down the law of God. We actually have a low view of the law of God, not a high view, and that's when we have no peace in our lives. When we do what Keith Green did, when we end the song with, the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do, we're saying that somehow we can be like those sheep in the passage we're watering down the requirements of the law because paul says in romans 3 there's none righteous no not one do you have an accurate view of your sin and your guilt and how far you have fallen because while the law is good and perfect david meditated on it day and night All it does is accuse us. It doesn't give us any power to actually carry out its commands. Luther said, the law discovers the disease, the gospel gives the remedy. We stand in guilt and not in grace when we water down the law to something we can actually accomplish. I'll give you an example. Hang with me on this. So we're commanded in scripture to pray, we're told to pray, that's part of the law of God, to pray. Many times we're commanded to pray. And so we get three point sermons on how to pray, you know, pray like Daniel did, he prayed in the Old Testament, pray like David did with the spirit of thanksgiving, pray like Jesus did with the Lord's prayer. When two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst. So go to small group and pray in the small group as well. And you know what? You should also go to the prayer service because, you know, that's what people who pray do. So if you had a church member, and some of you may be this person, who prays like Daniel three times a day, who rises early in the morning and prays, who prays in that way, who prays at the prayer meeting, who goes to the weekly prayer meeting and prays faithfully, we, you, me, we would probably say that that's a faithful prayer, that they are someone to emulate. You would, I would, and we would be wrong. We've watered down the law even when it comes to something like prayer because what does the law say about prayer? It says to pray without ceasing pray without ceasing so we water that down to mean well if you pray a few times a day or even a few times a week that's kind of what it means you know that's what without ceasing means but what it literally means is that your entire life is a life of prayer constantly all the time with a right motive prayers coming from your heart in conversation in all decisions that you were making that you were praying without ceasing and oh yeah by the way another requirement for praying is to pray in secret because that's what Jesus said when he He was asked, How do we pray? Go in your closet, pray. Don't let anyone know that you're doing it. If you do, you have your reward. So if you put it on Facebook that you went to the prayer meeting this past week, you're out of accord with the law of God. You are. The law accuses us, even on something as simple as prayer. When we have a poor view of our sin, we'll continue to carry the guilt. We stand in guilt rather than grace when we don't see our true condition. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were, let's say, sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, very few would die for a righteous man, and the way he uses this term righteous is different from the way he's used it, and the people would have understood this. Righteous, a righteous man meant someone who was moral, someone who was upright, but someone who was standoffish and kind of cold, like someone who you revered, but not someone that you were intimately close with. Paul said most people was not going to die for that guy. He said you may die for a good man and this is used in the sense where the good man is someone who is generous, someone who is relational, someone who is warm. Paul says, you know, maybe you would die for him. Perhaps you die for him. He wouldn't die for a man who seems to have it all together, who seems kind of stuck on it, not very relatable. You may die for a warm, relational guy, but you would never die for a sinner. The one who is your enemy. Get them in your mind right now. Your real honest-to-God enemy, a real bad person. Or when you lay down your life for the beggar along the street. You know, the guy at the intersection who should have a job, but he doesn't. And he's asking for stuff. Wouldn't you die for him? Or better yet, wouldn't you sacrifice your child in his place to die for him? We wouldn't. Paul says, we are that person. We are his enemy. We were his enemy. We are the gossip. We were the person who can't get their act together. We were the bum, the beggar. We weren't righteous. We weren't even that good or thankful or generous, but we were a sinner. We were a prostitute. We were a tax collector, a liar, a gossip, a porn addict, a drug addict, a miserable man, a person who is an idol making factory, a person who has. Total religious freedom and talks a lot about it while their Bible sits on the shelf collecting dust. A stingy person. We were that person and Christ died for that person. We stand in grace and not in guilt when we actually know those things about ourselves when we know our true condition, when we know our guilt, when we hear the good news of what Jesus has done, as we will hear in a minute, we change. That's what compels change. The gospel. I'm not even giving you practical advice. I trust you to figure it out. If you're hearing the gospel, I'm simply diagnosing our guilt, announcing the work that Jesus has done for us. If what I just said gets into the depths of our souls, that Christ died for us when we were at our lowest, when we were sinners, when we weren't even good, we weren't even righteous, we weren't warm, we weren't relational, we weren't generous, we weren't upright, we weren't any of those things, and Christ died for us. When that gets into the depths of our souls We change. I'll give you one example from marriage and parenting. I mean, Paul talks about dying for others in this passage. If your child, if your spouse, if a friend were on train tracks and a train's coming, what would you do? You would jump in front of them, jump in front of the train, you would push them away, you would lay down your life. Most parents would lay down their lives for their children no questions asked, lay down your life, maybe a little bit less so for your spouse, no questions asked, <laughs> and you would give your life for them, like this passage. And so we think, well, you yeah, we're kind of like that, but let's apply it more deeply. If your child or spouse needed you to give up your life for them, would you? Not your actual physical life, but your life life. Your daily life. You're willing to die for them by pushing them out of the way of a train. Most any parent would do that, but are you willing to die for them daily when you must die to your anger? When you must die to your greed? When you must die to your selfishness? we die for them physically? Will we die for them spiritually, emotionally, practically every day? Will you die to your spouse when you're in an argument, or do you need to be proven right? Of course you lay down your physical life for them, but will you lay down your actual life for them minute by minute? When you're standing in grace and not guilt, you will lay down your life daily, minute by minute, for those around you when it gets deep in your soul that Christ died for you. Paul is saying in this passage, get a grip on what Jesus has done for you. I mean, do you have that? Do you have a grip on what he's done for you? Deep within your soul, do you see your guilt clearly? Do you see what God has done for you? Try to get a handle on it. He doesn't die for us when we're righteous, this upright man. He doesn't die when we're a good person, a generous person. You aren't either. I'm not. We stand in grace when we understand our sin, but we also stand in grace, listen, when we understand. The meaning of the word, but. The power of the word, but. Anytime a person adds a but or however, after something has been said, it usually negates what was just said. You know, I mean, your boss says, you've been doing a really good job, you've been improving, Uh, your people skills are getting better, but... You know, your wife says to you that I've really appreciated the way you've been doing things around the house, shaving every day, but, you know, and you know the next thing that's going to be said is going to negate everything, every compliment that was made before that. That's it. It's over. I mean, think about it. You don't say to your wife, I really love you, my wife, but... Doesn't work. I love you because I love you, period. Paul has painted the human race in the bleakest possible terms in chapters 1 through 3, 20. And in 21, in chapter 3, we have to keep our eyes on this verse the entire time we go through this section. 321, that's the beginning of this section. Paul says in verse 1 in chapter 5, therefore, because of what you've heard, because of what I've said, what has he said? He starts his section on the gospel with these two words. But now, two of the most glorious words ever spoken, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now, I mean, usually the word but makes things worse or negates it, but in Romans 3.21, it's a time where the addition of but now is glorious. But is only a glorious thing when it's after, after statements of our great sin. Here's your great sin, here's your guilt, not a period, a comma, but, and then something else is said, That's the time when it's glorious. I mean, think about what he said. He said, take your sin, whatever that is, whatever your guilt is this morning, state your sin. And instead of a period at the end of a sentence, add a comma, because God has the final word. Grace bats last. Grace comes after, but state your guilt. Your sin, and then add these two words, but now. I mean, aren't you thankful for those two words, but now? Aren't you? I mean, have we lost sight of that, of what we've been saved from? You've struggled with your tongue and the words that you've said for your entire life, but now. You've struggled with lust and pornography. But now, you've struggled with anxiety and disbelief. But now, you've struggled with pettiness and getting offended over the slightest slight or criticism. But now, you've been disobedient to your parents, disrespectful to your parents. But now, you've been a people pleaser, a martyr a worrier, but now. You've been in the church for years and years and years and you still don't really get it, but now. You've judged others for the very things that you struggle with in your own life, but now. You are guilty, but now. Aren't you thankful for those two words? Many times we see our sins in final terms. With a period. That's why we have no peace. That's why we carry a sense of guilt, because we don't realize there are buts placed after the statement of our sin. But now. There's no if, ands, or buts after the statement of grace. It has the final word. What do I mean by that? I mean, we say there's nothing that we can do to earn this gift. There's nothing that we can do to keep the gift of salvation. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. That God loves us as much today. He accepts us as much today as he will five billion years from now. And then we say, but. However. God loves us unconditionally, but you better be careful not to abuse God's grace. God has forgiven all of our sins, but you better not preach that message too much or people will start to sin more, even though the opposite happens. We say things, but even though you have been given Christ's righteousness, you're going to be judged on your own righteousness. And pastors say it, famous pastors say it, They add buts after grace, however's after grace, ifs after grace, conditions after grace. Paul said in Galatians that if anyone adds a but after grace, if anyone adds anything but Jesus to the gospel, Paul said that even if an angel were to appear here right now from the sky and stand here and add a condition, To the gospel, let that angel be cursed. There is nothing added to the gospel. There are no buts to the good news. There are only periods, there's no commas, there's only exclamation points. There are no buts to the good news of the gospel, only periods. There's no commas, only exclamation points. This infinite God of all creation wrote our names down, wrote your name down, before the foundation of the world. Period. Period. Even before we were born. Even before we were fashioned in our mother's womb, he knew us, period. We were dead in our sins, and he pursued us, period. That we don't even give our hearts to Jesus. He doesn't want that old, dirty heart. He gives us a brand new heart and nails that old heart to the cross, period, that we're justified by faith alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, through the Word of God alone, through the promise that still stands in the Word of God alone, period, that all these impossibly glorious truths are true and reliable and sure. You know, my son will ask me many, many times for things. You know, there's always something he's asking me to do for him or give him or maybe he wants to go to a friend's house or whatever. Um, Well, it's not all the time, but it's a lot. And uh, he will, one time he asked me if he could go to a friend's house and his friend was standing right there and that's against the rules, but he asked if he could go or if they could come over. And I said, I'll think about it. And he made this statement, he said to his friend, he said, in dad language, I'll think about it usually means yes. So that's good news. Our Father in heaven has thought about it, and his promise is yes and amen. His answer is yes. His answer to the cross, when Jesus is on the cross and he lays down his life, is yes, I accept that, amen, so be it. All these impossibly glorious truths are true, reliable. I talked about Keith Green earlier and I only told you part of the story about him, I probably made him look um, a little bit uh, sarcastic. He tragically died in a plane accident with two of his children on July 28, 1982. He was 29 years old. He left behind his wife, Melody, who was pregnant with their fourth child, Rachel, and they had a one-year-old named Rebecca. A whole family of six was also on this plane with him and they all died. He died at the age of 29. His works, his songs are voluminous. The work that he did, living well past his years and his legacy. Before he died, he wrote a song that I see as the butt of what comes after his song about the sheep and the goats. It was a song about grace. One of the... Verses says, Lord, I remember that special way. I vowed to serve you when it was brand new. But now, like Peter, I can't even watch and pray. One hour with you, and I bet I would deny you too. And then he says, But nothing lasts. Accept the grace of God by which I stand. You know, when we're younger, we think we can change the world. When we grow older, we realize we can't even change ourselves. And we can't change our spouses. And we can't change our children. And we can't change anyone. And we are humbled and we stand in grace. Instead of standing in guilt, and it makes a huge difference in our lives when that, those works Tyler talked about last week, that they flow out from the cross, that they flow out from our lives when we are standing in that grace, when we have that peace with God, when the warring is over. So he writes this song, and I want you to close your eyes, stay still, you know, let's not all run out, the eagles aren't playing today, I don't think. Five and one, baby. <laughs> but I want us to go and I want us to, I want us to listen to this song, I want, I want us to um, meditate on this song that he wrote, Grace by which I stand, let's play that. Come on. Are you standing in grace, like you just sang, or are you standing in guilt? The way that you will know is very simple. We sang it earlier. Are your eyes turned, fixed, gazed upon Jesus? Are your eyes fixed on him? Because when we stand in grace, we are seated with Christ, Colossians tells us. He is seated with us. We are seated with Him. And when that happens, huge, huge, ruinous, revolutionary change happens in our hearts, in our lives. When we stand in that grace when we're seated with him, there was a missionary who was a missionary for 50 years and his wife preceded him in death. He didn't really have a lot of family. He was overseas and he came home, basically came home to die with cancer. His time had come. So he comes home and his daughter, his only family member, goes to her pastor here in the States. He says, will you please go and visit my father? He doesn't have a pastor. He's been ministering his entire life as a missionary. Will you please go visit him? And he said, of course. And he goes and he visits with this missionary, with this man of God, this man whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. And they talk about ministry and they pray together. And when they're done, when the pastor gets up to leave, He takes the chair that's next to the missionary's bed and he moves the chair back and the missionary said, please don't move that chair away. Please move that chair back next to my bed. pastor's like, okay. The missionary said, you see, every single night of my life, I always have an empty chair right next to my bed because it's a reminder. That Christ is with me, that he is seated with me, and that I am seated with him. Do you know what change flows out of that in a man's heart? Just that. There's a practical for you. So the next day, the missionary dies. So the daughter calls the pastor and tells, tells him about it, that they... He died by himself in the middle of the night. They missed it. But when they found him, he wasn't in his bed. He was on his knees with his head buried in that chair. Fixing his gaze, his eyes on Jesus. Peace with God. Justified. Pronounced not guilty. Trusting in Christ's righteousness, not his own. That's the moment when you trust in Christ's righteousness the most. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. Don't look at yourself. Look away from yourself. Look away from your works. Look away from your own righteousness. No matter what you did here on earth, look away from that. Look at Jesus. Gaze your eyes on Jesus. Are you standing in that grace?